Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to a new episode in the New Books and Gender Studies podcast. Uh, I'm one of the co-hosts of the channel, Kyle McMillan, and today it is my pleasure to be with uh, Professor of History Steve Tripp from Grand Valley State University, uh, and today we will be talking about his new book, Ty Cobb, Baseball, and American Manhood by Roman and Littlefield. Uh, Professor, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Okay, so uh, first, do you want to kind of give the listeners a rundown of your sort of academic career and what led you to eventually write this project about Ty Cobb? Sure, sure. Um, I uh, uh, got my PhD at Carnegie Mellon, uh, which is, at the time, and I think this is still true, the only program in the country that uh, is actually a PhD in social and cultural history. Um, I was hired by grad by uh, Grand Valley State University right out of grad school, and uh, uh, to teach primarily Civil War and Reconstruction, which I did uh, quite happily for uh, I don't know ten, twelve, maybe even fifteen years, something like that. But at a certain point, I uh, started to get sort of bored uh, teaching the same courses, and, and my own kind of intellectual interests were. We're moving in other directions, particularly in terms of areas of masculinity. And uh, at the same time, <clears throat> I was also teaching our uh, writing history course. And I realized in talking to my students how much uh, many of them absolutely loathed uh, reading history, um, at least academic history. And uh, so this book was really something of a uh, experiment to see if I could uh, write a book uh, that would be of real interest to my students, that's something that they would actually want to read. Um, and uh, uh, why Ty Cobb uh, and, and why talk about Ty Cobb within the context of manhood? Uh, well, I didn't want to leave behind my uh, interest in the Civil War uh, completely. And in fact, I had been making kind of furtive efforts to uh, study uh, Southerners after the Civil War and after Reconstruction. And I was interested in how uh, they kind of went on with their lives after defeat. Uh, And no one had really written on that topic. So that fascinated me a little bit. And um, uh, so, uh, at the same time, I just happened to watch the film Cobb, uh, which is a kind of a biopic about Ty Cobb. Not a very good one, but, but it is a biopic. And um, from that, I thought, well, geez, I want to know how much of this is really accurate. So I picked up Ty Cobb's autobiography, and, um, uh, which he wrote uh, really in, in the last years of his life. And uh, that fascinated me because it was just uh, overwhelmingly uh, an autobiography of Southern honor. And uh, so that was sort of helped me to answer the question of where Southerners were going uh, after the Civil War. Uh, At least in part, they were finding new venues in which to exhibit and express their their Southern honor. So... um, I originally envisioned this as a, uh, a very short, uh, actually just an article on Ty Cobb uh, and Southern Honor, uh, something that would just be sort of fun while I was mulling over these larger questions of, of Southerners after the Civil War and Reconstruction. Uh, <clears throat> but in time, I began to realize that uh, there was a story to be told, uh, a very large story to be told about Cobb. Uh, because as soon as you start talking about Cobb and Southern Honor, uh, the logical question is, well, how did Northerners uh, 
respond to all of this? What did they think of this guy? And uh, so here you are. Now I've been, I wrote a whole book (laughs) to answer that question. Yeah. So in your introduction, you mentioned that, you know, this book isn't a biography of Ty Cobb. And uh, the reasons why you wanted to situate it within this larger conversation of American manhood is you believe there are some misconceptions or kind of misrepresentations of Ty Cobb in earlier attempts. Uh, so why did you think it was important to sort of have a reexamination? Well, uh, what really fascinated me as I started reading about Cobb is uh, how popular he was, because in most of the literature um, about Cobb, most of our sort of public memory, I guess, about Cobb is that he was just this horribly hated uh, individual um, that nobody liked him. Players didn't like him. Fans didn't like him. uh, uh, The press didn't like him. uh, But in fact, he was... Uh, remarkably popular. He was easily the most popular baseball player in the game uh, during the early 20th century. Uh, So that, in fact, created yet another uh, kind of question, and that is, well, how did this guy, who was uh, admittedly uh, a very violent um, uh, and vindictive individual, uh, become so popular? What what, why did fans uh, uh, want to see this, uh, and in what ways did his behavior, uh, and again, you know, overwhelmed with these notions of honor and such, uh, why and how did that appeal to fans uh, from the North uh, who were primarily uh, urban uh, at this point, um, and mostly from uh the kind of what we call the emerging new middle class uh, uh, and uh, uh, wealthier working classes. And uh, so answering those kind of questions really brought me uh, into uh, the world of of masculinity uh, during the early 20th century. Yeah. So what exactly happened in Ty Cobb's early life? Um, that sort of eventually led him to baseball, but also began to shape his views on manhood. Yeah. Well, um, the way that I handle this in the book is is, uh, to explain that there was no single influence in Cobb's life. Uh, In fact, he had many influences. Um, uh, He came from a very small town in northeastern Georgia, a very, very rural community. Uh, his father was a, um, a school teacher uh, and something of a kind of uh, kind of a middle class jack of all trades, I guess is the best way to say it. Uh, he he uh, dabbled in the newspaper business. He ran for and, and won state legislature one year. Uh, then became a county supervisor uh, for the school district uh, that uh, Cobb, uh, Cobb, in fact, went to. Um, and uh, so Cobb, growing up in this environment, uh, was, in fact, in contact with, with large numbers and, and diverse uh, numbers of, of uh, men, uh, all of whom... Uh, Express their masculinity in 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 ways that uh, appealed to Cobb, and so Cobb became this kind of amalgam of many many uh, different forms of, of manhood. Um, and uh, uh, growing up in the rural South, um, he took it sort of for granted, I guess, the basic contours of, of Southern manhood, uh, that basically uh, the individual is is only sort of as worth as, as much as other people uh, give them, uh, that the way that one proves his masculinity is is by uh, kind of daring acts and, and um, uh, 
uh, feats of, of, of bravery and, and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, Cobb himself was sort of always looking for a competition of some sort uh, and a pack of kids that he, he wandered around with in the streets of this little town, Royston, um, you know, were, were constantly competing with each other in in just about everything you know not just uh, uh sports but also um you know uh, games at school uh, uh at one point Cobb even supposedly uh was dared to walk uh, a tight wire uh, from one uh, end of uh from one side of the street to the other and did that uh, he would uh, race across uh, railroad tracks uh when the trains were coming and that sort of thing you know just kind of nutty stuff like that and and all of the kids were involved in these sorts of things um, and uh Cobb's father was very eager for him to, in fact, uh, kind of embrace a kind of middle-class standard, and and uh, his father was very much a a, a a follower of kind of New South ideology. That is, you know, that uh, uh, the South would be uh, would rise again on the fortunes and aspirations of of a kind of new middle class of, of men who are more entrepreneurial and professional, and. Um, he tried very. Cobb was his oldest son, and he tried very, very hard to fit Cobb into that um, into that mold. Uh, uh, he introduced him to lawyers. At one time, uh, Cobb went to a uh, kind of shadowed a doctor, um, and uh, even sat in on a on an operation uh, so that he could see how how medicine worked. Um, uh, at one point, uh, his father thought, oh, maybe, you know, we can have him do a, a military career. So he was all set to send him to, to West Point and uh, that sort of thing. Um, but Cobb was really just far too rambunctious for any of that. And uh, uh, eventually, at a very young age, actually, joined the local semi-pro baseball team. And uh, that is really what what kind of excited Cobb more than anything else was just playing ball. And, and uh, so uh, eventually Cobb's father uh, had to let his son go. And so at the, what we would consider today, I think the remarkably young age of uh, 17 years old, Cobb left home to, to play uh, professional ball, semi-professional ball. And, uh, went on from there to play baseball. So you talked a little bit about this uh, before, but what did baseball mean to the people of Cobb's era? Well, um, yeah, uh, it, uh, it, you know, this was the time really when baseball became the national game. Um, it, there was no sort of, preordained uh, uh, movement, you know, that baseball was going to be uh, the most popular game. Um, and in fact, in the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, there were couple different sports that were vying for that kind of popularity. Uh, uh, prior to baseball's ascendancy, uh, boxing, prize fighting was probably the most popular sport. Um, and uh, uh, football uh, was becoming increasingly popular, particularly at colleges during the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, basketball, of course, had just been invented, and uh, so that was gaining a little bit of appeal. Uh, but, but baseball, for all intents and purposes, sometime during this early 20th century became uh, ascended to, to the top. And, um, and it, it did so, I think, because unlike uh, the other sports, it, it resonated most with this new middle class. Um, this is a time in which uh, uh, you know, more and more people are moving to cities and uh, uh, they are also um, uh, becoming enmeshed in a, a kind of new economy, one that they had not 
heretofore experienced uh, historians call this uh, corporatization uh, just simply the scale of of businesses began to grow exponentially um, of course uh, among working classes this meant larger factories and things like that but for middle class people it meant uh, you know, uh, larger offices and office buildings and things uh, where they were uh, kind of cooped up as clerks and filers and uh, sales agents and things of that sort. And uh, they're primarily uh, uh, young, ambitious, eager. Uh, they uh, like order. They like regimentation. Um, they, uh, you know, they see that as kind of their, um, uh, their mark of their professionalism is, is uh, to have rational organization. And so they, they, they're immersed in all this, but at the same time, they uh, also realize, I think, to a large extent, the kind of world that they've lost, uh, the, the kind of more swarthy uh, masculine world in some ways, but also a world of, of of independence and personal autonomy. And baseball is is unique, I think, of all sports in that it encapsulates that uh, tension between uh, being both a kind of uh, team member and subsuming. Uh, your personal goals for the goals of a team. You have to work together to some extent. Um, you have to play together. Uh, it requires a certain amount of order and self-control uh, to, you know, do anything. You know, run the bases, uh, 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 play defense in baseball, uh, you know, do, pull a double play, that sort of thing. And... Um, uh, at the same time, it, there are these moments of, of in which the individual stands apart, right? Uh, and when he's uh, hitting, uh, when he's running the bases, even uh, at certain moments when he's playing in, in the field, um, the ball player stands apart. And uh, so baseball has this kind of appeal then for people who want both ways. They want that personal autonomy, but they also want uh, to be considered part of something greater. Uh, and kind of reflective of that uh, is the notion of statistics, right? In baseball, baseball is obsessed with statistics. And uh, those statistics often kind of embody uh, the uh, personal, both the personal and the group, right? Um, uh, the, the statistics themselves are personal, but they kind of add up into a kind of uh, group, um, uh, group, group composite. And uh, uh, at the same time, right, they're also just highly statistical. And this, this appeals to this new professional class who, you know, are doing nothing but pushing numbers sometimes in, in the work that they perform. So uh, uh, I think that has a lot to to do with the ascendancy of baseball at this time. So did Cobb's version uh, or like performance of manhood match or more shape the type of manhood that baseball was starting to value? Um, well, it, boy, that's a really good question because um, uh, prior to Cobb, uh, uh, baseball was was uh, did not have uh, well I shouldn't say prior to Cobb, but uh, baseball had very few stars, uh, and the stars that they did have uh, were uh, prided themselves on being kind of part of a team, uh, which right is very consistent with these kind of middle class values and such like that that these folks have, uh, and uh, in fact. Uh, if you look back in the late 19th century, really the, the quote-unquote stars of the game, uh, the people who got the most notoriety were, were not necessarily the ball players, but they were uh, the managers, uh, and sometimes uh, even the owners. Um, uh, that's not to say that there weren't star ball players, but uh, they didn't have that same kind of aura that that we now attribute, you know, as sort of the superstar athlete and such like that. Um, 
And so Cobb is sort of unique in that, and remembering, you know, this guy came from the South. He wasn't at, at all part of this new middle class, uh, aside from, you know, what his father had taught him. But he was, he was much more sort of uh, enmeshed in uh, the, the kind of swarthy um, uh, independence, personal autonomy of, of, of more traditional Southern whites. And so... Cobb found it very, very difficult to uh, to compromise with his teammates, uh, uh, and uh, he also found it very difficult to to kind of not stand out. Uh, uh, he 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 was something of a showman. He uh, he liked uh, public audience, and uh, he was extremely articulate and. Uh, even I think it's fair to say kind of a charismatic, at least in his conversations with the press. Uh, so he really um, uh, kind of defies in many ways these kind of, you know, kind of staid middle class standards. But at the same time, by uh, bringing attention to himself, by, uh, uh, you know, when he played baseball, you know, the thing to always remember about Cobb is that he wasn't just this great hitter, he was this great uh, uh, baseman, and that's really where his, uh, his initial fame came from, is, is his ability to steal bases, the, the chances that he took, taking dares. He, in fact, you know, defied the statistical odds uh, as, as uh, fans and ball players knew it at that time. Uh, so he's one of these, you know, this, this sort of individual who, who really kind of goes against the grain, I think, of a lot of uh, the received uh, science of baseball as as people knew it at that time, um, and and fans uh, like that because it was you know as much as they like the predictable, the rational, the organized. Uh, remember, they 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 still are looking for outlets for a different kind of masculinity, and Cobb uh, completely defied those. Uh, uh, kind of standards of mass imposed uh, that sort of stayed middle class, and so he he fits into this world in in ways that, in some ways, is consistent with uh, the standards of the day, but also in ways challenge the standards of the day. And that's you know, if you think about it, that's perfect, right? Uh, for for making a name for yourself, right? Uh, you don't want to come off as someone who is completely alien, but at the same time, you don't want to come off as someone who uh, is um, uh, just like everybody else. So he uh, he was sort of the right person at the right time, I guess the best way to say that. Right. So you kind of alluded to it a few times, but what did the notion of honor mean to Cobb? And then how did that notion translate to his performance on the diamond? Yeah. Um, well, honor meant a uh, uh, couple things, I think, to Cobb. One, it meant uh, always being the best. Uh, uh, honor is in some sense a kind of pecking order. Uh, particularly as it's played out in the South. And so uh, uh, for Cobb, uh, always had to sort of uh, uh, place himself first. Uh, he saw every competition uh, in life, uh, not just in baseball, but in life, as a kind of competition of self. Uh, and so, you know, whether it's... Uh, uh, battling a pitcher, you know, when he's at bat or in a batting race in which he's competing with uh, Napoleon LaJoy or Shoeless Joe Jackson uh, or a contract dispute with the uh, 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 owner of, of the Detroit Tigers, a fellow by the name of Frank Navin, um, or in the battles that he eventually had with uh, uh, the president of the American League, um, Ben Johnson, he always saw those as kind of personal competitions. And he was determined always to win those personal competitions. Uh, so that's, that's part of it. Part of it is, uh, for, for Cobb, it meant um, a kind of extreme form of personal autonomy. 
that no one uh, would control him, uh, that no one could make him to do his bidding. Uh, and remembering, again, that he comes from the South, um, Southerners uh, in a generation, two generations before Cobb, uh, attributed the man of honor or, or the man without ma- honor as a slave. Um, and those notions are still very strong in the South. And, and to Cobb then, uh, any effort uh, to, to limit his freedom, to, to limit his personal autonomy, he took as, as a, a kind of threat uh, to, I mean, we use the term manhood and such like that, but it, he really would have seen it as a threat to his 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 uh, humanness, not his humanity, but his, his being human, being a person, uh, and thinking of, of African Americans and slaves as being less than less than persons. Uh, so th- that notion then of kind of personal autonomy, and then on the, you know the flip side is then that uh, just as he wanted to protect himself from being that that enslaved person. Um, the, the great victory for Cobb was also always making someone else do his bidding, uh, you know, uh, making someone else into uh, a kind of servile uh, to him. And uh, uh, one of the most, I think, kind of interesting things when you read Cobb's autobiography is is how often he'll allude to this fact that you know when he. When he gets revenge upon someone, he's essentially uh, making them do his bidding uh, and uh, humiliating them in some form so that they are less than human. Right. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, that was it. That was, I was just saying that, that's sort of what Cobb meant by honor, how Cobb lived his life. Yeah, so... In one of your chapters, uh, you title it, and this isn't your original words, but sort of how people thought of Ty Cobb. Uh, it's titled The Most Unpopular Popular Man in Baseball. So what kind of explained this paradox, and how did uh, Cobb's notion of manhood uh, match those of sort of... Uh, you know, this new yeah, professional yeah. man, but also yeah. in unpopular ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, uh, uh, that, that statement, the most popular, unpopular. Um, I think I'm the only scholar that's studied Ty Cobb who found that quote. So I'm very proud of that. <laughs> Cause it really, I think encapsulates Cobb perfectly, uh, in, in terms of his relationship with fans. Uh, and it really, I think says something more about the fans than maybe it does about Cobb. Um, fans, when they go to a baseball game, uh, then as now I think are looking for some release, um, that's maybe less true in baseball, which has become, I think, kind of a more, um, passive sport in a way, but it's certainly true in football. Uh, and, and in some ways, I think, in, in thinking about baseball in the early 20th century, um, it's wise to sort of think of uh, 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 fans in, in that light as <laughs> almost as like football players, or football fans, uh, you know, the Cleveland's dog pound, or, uh, and I should know this being from Oakland, the Oakland Raiders, they're, you know, their fans and their, what do they call it? The black hole. Uh, now fans weren't quite that rowdy. I mean, they didn't, uh, well, some fans actually dressed up and made a lot of noise like black hole fans and such like that, Raider fans, but, um, they, uh, uh, more, went to the game really as a way to kind of exhibit a kind of masculinity, a manhood that they were not able to do at the office. Um, the the uh, ballpark in that way is a kind of a place of liminality. It's a, you know, a kind of in-between place. It's not a place where uh, that is uh, rule, governed by the rules of, of the rest of society and so fans could act in some pretty uh wild ways and Cobb fit their uh uh desires perfectly he he kind of satiated their desires perfectly because 
he was this kind of player that they, you know, loved to boo. And Cobb himself uh, always said, uh, and, and this is in some ways kind of Cobb being the master PR person, but also Cobb being the master man of honor, um, always said that he he played to the fans, uh, and meaning he he you know invited fans to in fact boo him. Uh, remembering again that you know every contest for Cobb is an affair of honor. Uh, one of those contests then is with the fans. He felt day in and day out uh, on the ball field that he had to prove himself to those fans. And so uh, nothing satisfied him more than booing fans because uh, in any given day, he made it his task to turn their uh, jeers into cheers. Uh, and he's very forthright about this. You know, he talks about this constantly while he was a player and then and then uh, years later when he reminisces about playing baseball that, uh, you know, he loved booing fans. He, he loved to surprise them. He loved to ignite them. Uh, he loved to frustrate them. Uh, but he always... Uh, wanted to come back to this notion that eventually they're going to respect him for who he is and eventually they're going to cheer him, uh, uh, maybe reluctantly, but they'll, but they'll cheer him. And uh, so, you know, there's this wonderful just sort of dialogue, I guess is the best way to say it, uh, between uh, the fans and Cobb that they came uh, to try to, uh, as much as anything, to to uh, frustrate him and and uh, to test his will and uh, to test his skills and and to thwart his efforts, and then Cobb, on the other hand, sort of you know essentially, uh, you know, standing in the middle of the field, saying you know, come on, I'll take on all comers, and uh, uh, showing on the ball field that, that he meant that, that he could, he could withstand their criticisms, he could withstand their boos, and uh, uh, make them cheer in the long run. So, he's a fun guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and one of the uh, more interesting kind of confrontations that he has with a fan, because he had many, but right, one, yeah. one of the more interesting ones was when the fan... Uh, sort of contested his whiteness. I don't know if you want right. to go into that particular yeah. incident. Uh, yeah, that was in 1911 against a, uh, uh, in New York, at the polo grounds uh, where they, uh, the Yankees, they weren't called the Yankees then. Uh, they were called the Highlanders, but um, where the Highlanders played. Um, and uh, this happened in May of 1911. What's interesting about this, a couple of things. One is, uh, it's, it's part of this series that they were playing against the, the Highlanders. In the first game, uh, Cobb was actually rewarded uh, um, with this big plaque from the uh, city of New York and the fans, and they all cheered him and all that sort of thing. Uh, but there was one fan who was at that game and then subsequently the next game uh, by the name of George Luker. Uh, or Lucker, depending on how uh, you want to pronounce it, um, who uh, uh, really, I guess, more than uh, normal, uh, got under Cobb's skin. Um, and uh, we're not too sure exactly everything that passed by between them, um, but uh, Cobb, as we often do, uh, yelled back at Luker, uh, and Luker yelled at him. And, and you have to remember ballparks at this time period <clears throat> were really very intimate affairs. Uh, there, was, uh, there was not the space between uh, uh, the field and, and the stands that there is now. Uh, these were smaller ballparks, maybe you know, holding eight to 10,000 fans, that sort of thing. So uh, generally, if a fan wanted to be heard, he could be heard, and this fan wanted to be heard. And uh, among the things that he uh, apparently said is that um, uh, Cobb was the product of a uh, 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 
relationship between uh, Cobb's mother and a black man that he was in a lot. And, of course, this is fighting words to a, a, a white man, especially a white man of the South. And um, it didn't take long for things to uh, devolve. Uh, uh, the fans started saying these things around the first inning. And uh, initially, Cobb... Uh, amazingly with with great deal of restraint tried very hard to to avoid the fan in fact at one point uh he stayed out in the outfield um rather than come back to to uh, uh the dugout in between innings just so that he wouldn't have to to walk by this fan um but eventually he did have to go back to the dugout because he was going to hit and uh the fan went at it um and Cobb was just fuming getting furious and uh uh, according to Cobb, and you know who knows if this is true, but according to Cobb, um, uh, his uh, teammates, Cobb's teammates, many of whom were not really speaking to Cobb. Cobb was not very popular at all in 1911 among the rest of his Tiger teammates, but um, uh, told Cobb that uh, he wouldn't be a man if he didn't uh, retaliate, if he didn't confront this fan, and uh, that's all Cobb needed, and uh, without. Uh, any more to do or conversation, he bolted uh, from the dugout, ran, uh, 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 hopped the fence uh, between the dugout and the stands, uh, and essentially climbed up the, I don't know, five or six rows, something like that, you know, not even using the aisle, uh, and uh, essentially mauled the fan uh, using uh, uh, not only his fists, but also his spike shoes. Um, and uh, really, from all that we know, he became rather kind of unhinged. Uh, the fan himself had, had um, been in an industrial accident. He was a uh, he worked for a newspaper company and doing the printing. He was a printer, and he had gotten his hands mangled in one of the newfangled printing machines, and and uh, so he did not have uh, full functioning hands, and. Uh, uh, when fans protested and said, you know, this man's a crippled cop, said, I don't, you know, uh, expletive, 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 <laughs> and continued to kick him. Uh, only after um, uh, his his teammates came and essentially dragged him out, you know, to calm stop, uh, he was uh, immediately uh, kicked out of the game. Uh, and this is where life and, and the game gets really kind of interesting. Uh, because uh, the fans themselves, and, and remember these are New York fans, they were not uh, Detroit fans, uh, uh, begin to boo because they felt that Luker should have been expelled uh, as well. And so then Luker was expelled. And uh, as Cobb uh, walked off the field, fans actually cheered him. And... Uh, so then you have this kind of, and, you know, Ben Johnson, the president, immediately gets involved in this and, and suspends Cobb uh, indefinitely. Uh, ben Johnson himself was a uh, uh, kind of self-righteous uh, when he took over uh, the uh, American League. He eventually kind of, he actually sort of invented the American League. Uh, he had wanted this kind of uh, very law and orderish kind of league. He didn't like the rowdiness of baseball and, and wanted a much more controlled kind of atmosphere. Um, and so, you know, he, of course, you know, was aghast, appalled at what Cobb had done here. And uh, so Van Johnson uh, suspends Cobb. Um, and so Cobb's kind of, you know, in limbo here. And at this point, uh, uh, this is where the uh, life gets really strange because many uh players, uh, including uh, Christy Matheson, you know, who's sort of the saint of baseball or something, you know, comes out and says, so, you know, Cobb was wrong, you know, you just can't behave like this. Uh, uh, his own teammates, realizing that they cannot win uh, without him, actually stood by Cobb and uh, refused to play uh, uh, until uh, Cobb was reinstated and, and that led to uh, one game, in fact, where uh, the Tigers had to field a kind of amateur team because the Tiger players wouldn't play. Uh, the press was, was very much kind of divided. Uh, most of the New York press, with one exception, one newspaper, 
uh, sided with Cobb, but most of the press was like, oh, this is horrible, this is horrible. But the fans themselves, uh, by a fairly large uh, percentage, seem to have sided with Cobb. Uh, one newspaper, in fact, did a poll of fans as they uh, were entering the ball, ball field um, a couple days after this event uh, and asked them uh, if Cobb was right or wrong to go into the stands. And the fans, uh, by something I think like a three-to-one margin or something like that, uh, sided with Cobb and said that Cobb was justified in this behavior. Um, and, you know, I, I, I use that event as a kind of example then of, of uh, the kind of fans' mentality, uh, how, in fact, they liked someone uh, who, uh, you know, took it. Uh, took it to the man, you know, took it, uh, uh, who fought back, who, you know, refused to uh, take an insult. Uh, in their lives, uh, they couldn't do that, right? They were part of a, you know, more orderly culture. Uh, but the ball field is different. And uh, they they felt that uh, George Luker had violated a kind of ethic. Um, and... Uh, uh, by calling, you know, Cobb essentially a person of mixed race. And uh, they thought as well, you know, if you can't, uh, you can't take it as well as give it, then, you know, you're, you're, you're worthy of the kind of assault that Cobb, in fact, visited upon this guy. So, um, yeah, and I, you know, it must have been a lot of fun to watch these games. Oh, oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was just a very different kind of environment. I, uh, one of the joys of writing this book was that, um, you know, I got to read the sports page uh, for, you know, I don't know, six or seven years while I was doing the research. You know, every summer I'd spend my time reading the sports page of sports journals and such like that. And, and the sense that you get by reading this is that uh, it was just, you know, uh, baseball, which was, I think was just a lot more fun back then. You know, to watch. I mean, it's much more unpredictable and and uh, uh, dangerous, I guess, in some ways. But but just a really fascinating uh, uh, environment. Yeah, and when when Luker kind of uh, brings up to Ty Cobb his mother, I think even though this is kind of going back into Cobb's earlier life, but I I think the relationship that Cobb had with his mother and then that sort of uh, what it had to do with his father as well, that sort of earlier incident in life. Uh, well, yeah, of... yeah. And that's something that, I mean, the fan wouldn't have known about this. Right. Um, and uh, very, very few people knew about this. But, um, yeah, when Cobb was uh, uh, actually within weeks before Cobb was called up, uh, by the Detroit Tigers uh, for his uh, major league debut at the age of 18. Um, his uh, mother uh, killed his father under very uh, suspicious, suspicious circumstances. Uh, Cobb, uh, Ty Cobb was in uh, Augusta playing for the Augusta Tourists of uh, the Southern League at this time, and so he was not at home. Um, but we don't know that much about him. People have, have uh, uh, you know, come up with all sorts of theories about, you know, what was actually going on. Um, all we know is that uh, uh, Ty Cobb's uh, father, William Cobb, who was then uh, superintendent of the county schools, so he spent a lot of time away um, visiting, you know, schools throughout the county. And remember, this is horse and buggy day, so he would have, you know, had to ride his horse and, you know, be gone for a couple of days at a time, that sort of thing. Well, one evening, one, uh, and it was in the evening, which was sort of unusual, uh, uh, William said that he had to go out of town. Um, and uh, uh, so he went out of town, uh, or seemed to be going out of town, but then for some reason, uh, doubled back. And, um, then, uh, at late at night, um, uh, the, the lights were all out in the home. Uh, William returned, and um, according to 
Cobb's mother. Um, he then uh, tried to enter the house through a window, and uh, Mrs. Cobb uh, had a gun um, and uh, uh, shot at this intruder. At least that's the story that she told. And um, and it, from there it gets rather weird because uh, she shot once, um, and then a couple minutes passed, and then uh, she shot again. And uh, the rumors were, uh, and some people give more credence to these rumors than others, and, and, and uh, I don't know. In some ways I think it, it's not all that significant uh, what, uh, whether the rumors are true or not. But the rumors uh, were that she um, was having an affair with someone and that by um, uh, William returning home, um, he caught them in the act. And in fact, some of the stories say that it wasn't uh, Mrs. Cobb who shot William at all. It was it was this uh, paramour who shot him. And, and uh, um, uh, yeah, so, you know, uh, Cobb himself, uh, again, being the man of honor, um, never deserted his mother. He, he absolutely worshipped his father, uh, you know, and, and everything that we know about him, he was, he was absolutely devastated by this. Um, and, it's, and as well, you, you can imagine, you know what I mean? Uh, you lose your father and then you find out that your mother is being, you know, arraigned in court um, for, for the murder. Um, that could, you know, that would destroy any semblance of a happy home. Um, but uh, <clears throat> Ty Cobb, in all of this, never deserted his mother. Uh, he, he went to the trial. Um, he helped raise the funds for, for her trial to defend herself. She, she, got, she got off. She didn't spend any time. Um, and uh, she often came to visit him uh, in Detroit, uh, stayed in the Cobb household, all of that. Um, but yeah, there probably is some truth, at least within this Luker incident, that he was uh, highly sensitive to any attacks upon his mother, and uh, you know any uh, kind of reference of his mother as someone who was sleeping around, uh, either with you know a white person, but but obviously also with a black person, would have been something that would have incited him to no end. Right. And just for maybe uh, those listeners who aren't uh, huge baseball fans, um, before Ty Cobb starts to deteriorate physically, how good at baseball was Ty Cobb? (laughs) Uh, He he was uh, uh, just extraordinarily good. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt about it. uh, and you can look at this statistically, uh, which people love to do back then. Uh, he uh, won the batting title, what, 11 straight years, or 12, 12 straight years? Jeez, I should know that. 12 straight years, nine years in a row. Um, uh, he had by far the highest, uh, and still has the highest batting average of any ball player. Um, and you can say, well, you know, okay, uh, people just used to hit for a higher average. But, but his average was still... Uh, uh, I think what uh, ten points higher than than the number two person. Um, there was one uh, three or four year span in which he averaged uh, nearly four hundred. Uh, you know, we haven't had a four hundred hitter uh, in decades, uh, and he averaged that over a three or four year period. He was just extraordinary. Um, but again, you know, uh, so much of his appeal wasn't just. Uh, what he did with the bat, it was also what he did uh, on the base paths. Uh, he was fast. There's, there's uh, absolutely no doubt about the fact that he was probably, uh, at least in his prime, the fastest ball player uh, on the base paths. But even more than that, he was just this incredibly astute uh, uh, student of the game. Uh, he, he made every part of the game a kind of science uh including uh you know how to steal a base uh how to slide uh he had uh, any number of ways in which he could slide um and uh you know in that way elude tags and things like that um 
I uh, grew up watching Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson had one way to slide. He always flew head first. Um, Cobb uh, never would have, he did slide head first in his very first time and got mauled by uh, the uh, infielder um, for doing so. Uh, and thereafter, never slid head first uh, and realized that you give away uh, the offensive if, if you try to slide head first. Uh, if, if you, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, he had all these different ways that he could slide uh, and just was incredibly elusive. Uh, he also uh, knew sort of. Um, I think partly by by observation and and partly by uh, intuition, uh, kind of when to attack uh, and to take. Uh, he he claimed that he was this uh, this great um, student of psychology, uh, and there's probably some truth to that. He knew exactly when uh, he could unnerve another player by attacking in some ways. You know. Um, taking an extra base or, uh, uh, you know, acting aggressive in some form or another. Uh, so uh, the uh, fans who, you know, later talked about what it was like to watch Ty Cobb or, or the, uh, the media that really loved Ty Cobb because he was, he was so colorful and, and uh, uh, so exciting to watch, um, all said basically the same thing. When you go to a baseball game, uh, you have to watch Ty Cobb. If you don't watch Ty Cobb, you're going to miss something. And uh, so, you know, from the moment he uh, strode to the batting box uh, to the last out of the game, he was he was the center of attention. And, uh, uh, you know, doing things that, that, you know, no other player could could attempt because simply no other player had the wherewithal, uh, the skill to do that. Yeah, and I think one of the bigger sort of what-ifs, not only for students of history but also baseball fans, is Ty Cobb begins to deteriorate with the ascendancy of Babe Ruth. And I think what is most interesting about your chapter about Cobb and Ruth is that not only were they uh, contrasting styles of play, but almost contrasting or sort of evolving notions of manhood, if you wanted to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because, um, uh, you know, Cobb encapsulates, uh, I think, early 20th century manhood, sort of pre-World War I manhood. Uh, and uh, Ruth very much encapsulates, I think, what we would call sort of, you know, the roaring 20s, not just in terms of manhood, but in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the broader culture more generally. Uh, Ruth was, and Cobb was uh, a kind of Victorian in his constant effort to, to control and maintain. Uh, he was also rooted in uh, the South and, and uh, again, this kind of rugged individualism of the late 19th century. Uh, Ruth is, you know, uh, kind of, I think, what we would say, kind of the modern notion of celebrity, uh, someone who just brought attention to himself for the sake of bringing attention to himself, uh, uh, you know, someone who, you know, was was known for his gluttonous behavior, his excessive behavior, and uh, um, that sort of thing. But um, and, and there's no doubt about it that uh, at the point in which Ruth ascends uh, and, you know, begins to hit home runs just in, in kind of, you know, remarkable uh, streaks of, of power uh, around 1918, 1919, uh, Cobb is, you know, at that point in his middle 30s, um, and uh, although still uh, hitting at a very high average, uh, uh, he's beginning, you're right, his, his talents are beginning to deteriorate. But what's fascinating, I think, in part about this is that, um, you know, now we kind of remember Ruth as this uh, kind of constant celebrity and the the babe, the bambino, and we think, you know, oh, this guy was just, you know, adored and loved. Um, but that's not in, entirely true. Uh, 
while Ruth was doing this behavior, he really shocked a lot of people, and he got into a lot of trouble. I think, uh, I, and I, I, sorry, I won't get this exactly right, but in one year, in fact, I think he was suspended two or three times, uh, either by the club, uh, the Yankees, or by uh, the American League, uh, and he was in constant trouble. Um, and the remarkable thing I think about that is that uh, at that same time, for for uh, reasons that I think go back to to Cobb's ability uh, <laughs> to be his own best public relations man, um, Cobb begins to have this kind of renaissance of being the the elder statesman of the game of. Uh, of being uh, the kind of uh, wise, almost kind of like father figure, um, which is remarkable because on the field, Cobb is as petulant and as disruptive, uh, disruptive as ever. But but the press really painted him as someone who is uh, the good guy. And in fact, in in the worst of these times when Ruth is getting suspended and having all these problems, and he and he had just. Uh, fantastic uh, arguments with, with both the press and his manager and things like that. Uh, uh, there are a couple editorials that come out during this time that compare Cobb and Ruth and uh, in ways that essentially say, you know, Babe Ruth could learn a few things about proper behavior from Ty Cobb and, and uh, uh, which, you know, I think, you know, in hindsight, we would say, wow, where did this come from? You know, Babe Ruth, you know, he's, he's, he's the man child, you know, this one evil entity. And of course it wasn't really completely like that. So, um, yeah, uh, uh, but at the same time, and, and this is also sort of interesting that, that in some ways Cobb kind of got off free, uh, got free. Um, Cobb, uh, saw Ruth just as he saw every other rival, and that is someone to be defeated. And um, he he detested Ruth, at least initially. Uh, and he detested Ruth for uh, a variety of reasons, not the least of which um, he was convinced uh, that, that Ruth was um, uh, racially mixed. And, uh, uh, and in Cobb's kind of way of thinking, even if Ruth wasn't really uh, African-American, he, in Cobb's view, both looked African-American and behaved African-American. So he was essentially African-American. And, uh, of course, Cobb wouldn't have used that polite term. He would have used one uh, derogatory, pejorative term. Um, and and so you know for Cobb Ruth was always this this source of uh, this person that he wanted to defeat, um, and he believed you know given his his racial sort of ethnic biases against Ruth uh, that he could easily beat him uh, with intelligence, um, and uh, in in the Cobb uh, memory of things. Uh, he in fact did that. Uh, Cobb claimed um, that uh, he uh, was able to abuse Ruth to no end. That uh, he uh, that Ruth never hit very well against uh, his Detroit Tigers. That uh, uh, he kind of had Ruth's number. Um, the statistics tell us otherwise. That in fact Ruth hit very well against Cobb's team. Uh, uh, and, and uh, you know, when they went when against each other, uh, that, uh, in fact, uh, Ruth always hit better than Cobb. Cobb himself never, didn't always have very good games against the Yankees uh, at that point in time in his career when you had to face Ruth. So. Uh, which is uh, also uh, another kind of fascinating thing about Cobb is that, uh, and this is also sort of part of the Cobb, uh, I don't know what you would say, toolbox of honor or something like that. And that is that Cobb lied. Uh, he, he lied prolifically. Uh, in fact, I think that was one of the most enjoyable things that I wrote about was, was 
I thought, and, and one of the things that, that uh, no other scholar has really shown about Cobb is that uh, he was a prolific liar, both during uh, his playing career and after. Um, he believed that uh, part of being on or part of this notion of having control and things like that was um, if, if you had honor, uh, if you were in control, then your word would have to be accepted over someone else's word. Uh, if, if you lost control, uh, then someone could uh, uh, challenge your word. But as long as you were in power, uh, your word counted. And it um, uh, sounds a little bit like modern politics. But, um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and so he did that with Ruth, essentially, uh, both while they were playing and especially afterwards and, and after Ruth died, uh, Cobb could say anything that he wanted to about Babe Ruth. And among the things he said is that he uh, had uh, Ruth's number and was in complete control of Ruth and all this sort of stuff. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so we, we've taken up a lot of your time. I was, I was wondering if you wanted to close out with maybe if people were really interested in checking out your book and then in that topic in particular, do you have like two or three books that you would recommend that people sort of check out? And then finally, what are you working on in your sort of upcoming yeah, work? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, the first question. That's a good one. Um, uh, books that, that are sort of consistent, I guess, on the same topic, I guess, is what you're wondering. Well, I'll tell you, um, uh, the historian that, that I really like, and I, I think, uh, at least for this project, really uh, in, inspired me to think about uh, sports and masculinity the way that I did is uh, Elliot Gorn, who wrote a book, gosh, it's been a few years, uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago, um, uh, called The Manly Art, which was about uh, boxing in the in the 19th century. But uh, uh, I think uh, his work is just really, really uh, uh, interesting in how he deals with masculinities. Um, there's also uh, John Casson, K-A-S-S-O-N, uh, who wrote a book called uh, The Perfect Man, um, which is actually a book. The title is much longer than that, but it's essentially a book about um, uh, Sandow, the bodybuilder, uh, Houdini, and uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, the writer, creator of Tarzan, who, who uh, and he writes about these sort of same notions of, of the changing face, I guess, of masculinity uh, during the early 20th century. So um, those two books, I think, in particular, really got me thinking about uh, uh, about baseball and where baseball fit in with, with all of this. Um, in terms of my, my own work, um, I'm now uh, just in the beginning uh, process of uh, what I think is a pretty exciting project. Um, and it's really going to what is in many ways, I think, sort of my my first love in terms of a subject matter, and that's the Great Depression. Um, both my parents were children of the Great Depression, and I grew up uh, listening to stories from them and from my grandparents about what it was like to... Uh, to live during the Great Depression and, and all the suffering they went through and that sort of thing. So, so I've always been fascinating with, fascinated with this period. And um, um, I've also uh, uh, obviously been in, uh, fascinated with uh, the topic of uh, 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 manhood and masculinities. And, and I've always wondered about, you know, what was it like, you know, for these men, you know, hundreds and thousands, probably millions of men who uh, uh, lost work and, and uh, struggled and, uh, to make ends meet and, and uh, uh, you know, saw what, you know, we now call the American dream sort of evaporate uh, in front of them. So I've been uh, fascinated with that. So uh, pairing those two things together uh, uh, has always been sort of something that I've wanted to, to study at some point in time. 
And I think there's a kind of urgency uh, to that at this time uh, because uh, one of the terms uh, that uh, was used to describe these men during the Great Depression has now uh, kind of re-entered our vocabulary. Uh, the forgotten man, uh, this was a term that uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt used initially in 1932 um, uh, part of his campaign uh, speech to uh, uh, identify those people who he thought needed more support from the government. And um, uh, so he is essentially kind of advocated for them. Um, and then from there it became a, uh, uh, entered popular culture. Uh, a musical number from Gold Diggers of 1933 that talks about the forgotten man uh, there's any number of short stories and novels that either use the term forgotten man or, or at least talk about uh, that kind of person, the person who's been overlooked and neglected. And, uh, um, and of course, uh, more recently, uh, our president used the term during his inauguration to talk about the forgotten. He didn't say forgotten man, he said, but he, the forgotten people and then the men and women who, who uh, are government has forgotten. So um, kind of pairing all those things together, uh, my my desire here is to write a book about the forgotten men of the Great Depression, uh, calling it a social cultural biography of the forgotten man. So we'll see how that pans out. <laughs> well, that, that sounds really interesting. And once you finish that project, we'll have to bring you back on the podcast for, the, for yeah. that one. <laughs> If it takes as long as it took me to write Tycom, that could be a long time. <laughs> Hopefully it won't. So, yeah. Well, I really enjoyed this book. I'm sure other people will enjoy it. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you. I really appreciate talking to you. It was fun.